Good morning, everybody. So today we're meeting Anne Judson. Um, she was born in 1789, and she became a, in Massachusetts, and she became a Christian when she was 17 years old through a revival that was going on in her area, and she felt a really passionate call to serve the Lord. Um, and that happened um, when she met a guy named Adoniram Judson, and she married him in 1812, and they immediately, and what I mean by immediately is the day after they got married, left for India. Um, there was three couples, and the three women who went with their husbands were the first American female foreign missionaries. Um, and they left for India, and they sailed across the ocean. Uh, Anne became pregnant during that journey, and she gave birth on board the ship, and unfortunately, her baby did not survive. Uh, when they got to India, there was conflict there um, related to a variety of things, but they weren't allowed to stay in India. So they moved on to Burma, which is present-day Myanmar. Um, and they settled there, and they decided to do their missionary work there. The work was painfully slow. Um, Anne and Adoniram had separated from the other missionaries for a variety of reasons, so they were there mostly by themselves. Um, they were both trying to learn the language and trying to share the gospel at the same time. Um, Anne's work included adopting some orphans, she worked on education for children, and then she did evangelistic work, especially geared towards, um, aimed towards women and children. Um, Adoniram was doing a lot of the same things uh, at the same time. In nine years, they had reached the number of 18 converts. Uh, and of course, those 18 were much beloved and they were very grateful for them, but nine years, 18 converts. <coughs> Um, in, uh, during that time, they also had a second child, a little boy, they named Roger, um, and unfortunately he died when he was only eight months old, and that was devastating to both uh, Anne and Adoniram. In 1824, uh, war broke out between the British and the Burmese, and because the Americans were suspected of being in cahoots with the British, the Burmese um, arrested Adoniram. Um, when Anne was two months pregnant with their third child. And Anne spent the next two years, prisoners in that time and place were fed only by their families from the outside. So if someone didn't take care of you, you were just going to starve to death in prison. So Anne spent the next two years kind of following Adoniram from one prison location to the other, partly while she was pregnant, partly while she was nursing, uh, taking care of him. And uh, and advocating for him, trying to use all of her contacts to get him out of prison. And finally, after two years, he was released, and her health was entirely broken by the experience, so she died a few months later. She was 36 years old. So it's easy to think that Ann Judson found, you know, had very little uh, fruit from her labor uh, during her lifetime. There were very few con converts and a lot of hardship. But... She never gave up in her calling. She persevered in her faith, believing that God had called her to this work at this time. And here are some of her accomplishments. She translated the books of Daniel and Jonah into Burmese, and she wrote a Burmese catechism. She translated the book of Matthew into Siamese, which is, modern, which is Thai. Um, and this made her the very first person to translate any part of the Bible into the Thai language. She wrote a book called A Particular Relation of the American Baptist Mission to the Burman Empire. 
which was widely read in America and became the primary text undergirding American Baptist missionary work. It recruited, helped recruit new missionaries, um, it helped raise funds, it helped people get people uh, excited about American Baptist mission work. And some of you may be familiar with Camp Judson, which is out in the Black Hills, and it is named after the Judsons. And here's the really interesting thing about the fruit of Anne's labor. Um, somewhere between now, currently, 5 to 8% of the people of Myanmar are Christians. And much of those Christians are concentrated in specific ethnic groups within Myanmar. One of those ethnic groups are called the Karen. And they had about 12,000 converts in the Karen group within 25 years of Anne's death. There was kind of an explosion in that group. Um, and the Karn people are a minority, and they have been, in modern day, persecuted some in Myanmar. So many of them have immigrated to the United States. And currently, right now, about 1,200 Karn people live in Huron, South Dakota. They were recruited to live there by a, a meat, a turkey plant, like a turkey processing plant. Um, and most of them, is my understanding, are Christians. So Ann Judson's work with the Myanmar people has borne much fruit. Some of it is living right here in South Dakota, which I think is pretty cool. This morning I'm going to read from 2 Timothy 4, 6, and then 16 to 18. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. If you don't quit, you win. If you don't quit, you win. That's the big idea today. How many of you have ever participated in a competition where all you had to do was finish to get the award? You didn't have to beat anybody. You didn't have to finish in the top 10%. You just simply had to finish. You know, marathons are this way, actually. Um, you know, obviously somebody always wins the marathon, and sometimes in a big marathon they'll have a prize for the person who actually finishes first in the marathon. But in general, they don't care what position you finish in, only that you finish, right? That's how you get the finisher's award. You just have to simply finish. And Christianity is a lot like that. We know that none of us will run our race perfectly. All of us are going to sin. That's built into this thing. That's why we have grace. All of us are going to have hills and valleys. We're going to have downtimes and uptimes. All of us are going to wrestle with doubts. All of that is allowed. 
the one thing we simply must not do is quit on our faith. That's the one thing we must not do. If you don't quit, you win. And I remember the first time that I heard this phrase. It was in a song by Misty Edwards, and she was singing it about this very passage here, sort of as um, sort of a prophetic song to the church um, from the Lord. And I remember just reflecting on that, like, boy, I've never thought about that in that way. And the song goes like this. She says, don't give up and don't give in. If you don't quit, you win. Kind of a catchy little phrase, right? But I remember thinking, I've, I've never, that's, that's never really landed on me like that. Like, God isn't expecting perfection out of us. He's just looking for perseverance. He's just looking for endurance in our race. If you don't quit, you win. So simple as that, right? Pretty easy? Well, not really, as you heard in Anne's testimony. Not really easy to continue on in perseverance and not give up. I mean, think about all, all the hard things that she went through. Turns out that quitting on your faith is a pretty powerful temptation for these days as well. Dave Gass, the former pastor at Grace Family Fellowship, took to social media recently and announced, after 40 years of being a devout follower, 20 of those being an evangelical pastor, I am walking away from the faith. Even though this has been a massive bomb drop in my life, it has been decades in the making. Decades in the making. Then the latest high-profile Christian person, person to renounce his faith is Paul Maxwell, the well-known Desiring God writer. Some of you follow that website, Desiring God. Maxwell said this on his Instagram feed, What I really miss is connection with people. What I've discovered is that I'm ready to connect again, and I'm kind of ready not to be angry anymore. I love you guys, and I love all the friendships and support I've built here, and I think it's important to say that I'm just not a Christian anymore. I'm just not a Christian anymore. It's no secret, if you've been following the last several years, some really big names in evangelical Christianity have dropped out of the race entirely. You know, Marty Sampson with Hillsong United and Joshua Harris, um, famous pastor and author, um, the lead singer for Hawk Nelson. And as I watched some of these things, I've been like, some of these people I looked up to and I had read their stuff and I had kind of watched their life and I thought, boy, I thought they were really strong in their faith. Like, Lord, what happened? What happened? Why did they quit? Why did they give up? And I, and I thought, would I ever quit on you, Lord? Would I, would I drop out of the race someday? Would I give up? And maybe you've asked yourself the same question or maybe you felt like quitting recently. No shame in admitting that. Church is a safe place to admit that, that you've felt like quitting recently. But there's a lot at stake, you understand. You know, quitting on your faith in Jesus is not like, you know, quitting on your, your workout program like we all do every February or so in there. Um, it's not like quitting on your Sam's Club membership. It's got really, really high stakes. There are really big ramifications. Your entire eternity depends on it. Nothing could be more important. And here in our passage from 2 Timothy, we, follow, we find Paul rejoicing in the fact that he's at the end of his life and he hasn't quit on his faith in Jesus. We find him astonishingly confident that he's going to get his reward. I mean, lots of the commentators talk about, it's almost like Paul's arrogant here. He's, he's just so confident that he's, he's going to receive his crown. You know, last week we studied the verses right before this passage where Paul is giving final words of instruction to the young Timothy, his, his spiritual son. And shockingly, this letter is extremely positive and confident, even though the circumstances Paul finds himself in are the exact opposite. 
They're just brutal, physically and uh, emotionally and psychologically. Um, Paul is in prison yet again in Nero's Rome, a prison that probably would make our prisons look like the Hilton. It's just cold and dark and no amenities and awful, awful place to be. And he knows his death is at hand. Look at verse 6. He says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The drink offering was kind of the last part of the sacrifice. And so he's saying, my, this sacrifice is almost over. I'm already being poured out. He says, the time of my departure has come. Two ways of saying the same thing. I'm about to die, Timothy. And then we're told in verse 16 that he's been abandoned by all his close companions except for Luke. What a way to go, right? All your close friends leaving you at the end. So you'd expect to find him pretty down in the dumps as he writes this letter to his son Timothy. But much to our surprise, we don't find him that way. We don't find him dejected as he's about to be executed as a lonely criminal. No, instead we find him confident, beaming with joy, and ready to go receive his reward. Paul explains in this passage what it's going to take for us to get the finisher's award. He details what it's going to be like if we are to persevere to the end, like Ann Judson did. He's saying, if you don't quit, you win. But it's not so easy. It's not as easy as it sounds. For Paul, he says, keeping the faith has been like two big things. It's been like fighting a big, long battle and running a big, long race. Those are the two word pictures that he gives. And those pictures are elsewhere in Scripture, too, but we're going to look at both of those here for a few minutes today. So first of all, keeping the faith is like fighting a battle. Yes, if you don't quit, you win. But Paul says you're going to have to fight. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no option here. You're going to have to fight. If you don't fight, you'll quit. And notice Paul, how he describes the fight. He doesn't say, look, I've fought valiantly. He doesn't say, I've defeated the devil. He doesn't say, I've won the fight. He just says, I fought the good fight. And apparently, he fought it till the very end. That's what's really important here. So to be a Christian is to fight. Why? Well, C.S. Lewis says it well, I think, um, in mere Christianity, he says, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Isn't that kind of fun to think about? Like, like Jesus has landed, the great king landed in disguise, and he's now calling us to take place in this great campaign of sabotage against a very real enemy. But how often do we forget about that fact, that we're in this enemy-occupied territory where there's, where there's a very real enemy coming against us? You know, no wonder why we have so much opposition. Now, exactly who are we fighting against as Christians? Well, the Scriptures tell us our battle is against three primary entities, and we're going to look at each one of them. And the first one is the devil and his servants. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So to give you an example, obviously in our nation, we have a big problem with school shootings, right? As we've had to horrifically watch these things unfold in the news, it's just heartbreaking. But those things are no doubt fueled by the demonic, right? I mean, is there anything more demonic than going in and shooting children? as they're learning in their classrooms. I can't think of anything more demonic than that. And so that's really where our battle lies. And in his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis wisely points out that Christians tend to try to go to one extreme or another when it comes to the devil. 
right? We either give him too much attention, which we call superstition, or too little attention, which we'd call substition. And so, you know, either we're saying, look, the, the, you know, the devil is so powerful and he's so mighty and we kind of almost make him more powerful than God and he's behind every tree and under every rock and we're just so worried about the devil all the time, um, giving him too much attention because obviously the scripture says greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world or too little attention, right? We just pay him no heed at all. We almost forget that there's a real devil that we are fighting against. We almost forget that there's real forces of darkness and evil out there at all. And when we think of him, we just think of, you know, the far side jokes. How many of you remember the far side jokes um, where, you know, the devil's always fat and lazy and he's sitting on a couch eating potato chips, kind of bossing people around and in red tights with horns. And you think, well, I can't believe in that, so therefore I don't believe in him. And this, too, is incredibly dangerous. Christians have always believed for 2,000 years in a real personal devil, just as we believe in a personal God. And our battle is with him and his servants. That's who we fight day in and day out as Christians. Now, perhaps this is a small wake-up call for you. If you've kind of, you know, been struggling lately, um, maybe you've been tempted by some certain kind of sin, and you just think, oh, that's just because I'm a horrible person. No, this is kind of time to sober up a little bit. You are being targeted. You are being worked on. Remember, the Scripture says the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Don't give him too much or too little attention. So our battle starts with a real personal devil who wants to destroy you. He doesn't want you to finish confidently like Paul is. He wants you to quit and give up on your faith. So in order to persevere, our first fight is going to be with the devil and his servants. But secondly, we battle our sinful flesh. The truth is, there's a part of us. The Bible uses the term flesh, and that doesn't mean body, but our flesh that is opposed to the Holy Spirit within us, right? Even after we're, we're saved, even after we're uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, there's a part of us, the flesh, that opposes the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And it's immensely frustrating. Galatians 5, Paul puts it like this. He says, the spirit and the flesh are at war with one another so that you do not do what you please. Which I like how he puts that, right? Because you actually, as a child of God, at your core, you want to follow him. It grieves you to sin. You don't want to go after these other things, and yet you feel a pull there. So you have this war, this internal struggle going on within you. So your spirit desperately wants to follow Jesus. At your core, that's exactly what you want to do. You want to please God, but your flesh wants what your flesh wants. It wants the, you know, the, the, the comforts and the pleasures of life, sex and drink and food and, and possessions. It wants what's, what's easy. What's everything that the, the Spirit is opposed to? Often in our D groups, as we're sharing our struggles, the sinful flesh is a topic of frustrated conversation, isn't it? As you talk to other believers, aren't you just like, yeah, I'm so sick of that. Like we'll, we'll say at our D group, I just wish I didn't have to battle these kinds of things anymore. Or at least I wish I could battle only external foes, right? It's very, very frustrating when you find the foe is internal. You're like, no, the problem is actually still inside me. That's really miserable. And if you don't understand this, you're going to spend a lot of time really discouraged and struggling with your identity. You know, many of us have read the famous book, The Curious Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, a classic book. What many of you probably don't know is that Stevenson was the grandson of Louis Balfour, who was a minister of the Church of Scotland. And so, no doubt, as you're reading this, this fiction work of, of Stevenson, 
he was wrestling deeply internal with this reality of having these two natures. And so obviously the, the premise of the book is that Dr. Jekyll, this London scientist, figures out a way to make a potion that separates his two natures. Because obviously one of the most miserable things about being about your good side is you're always tempted by the bad things. You can never just be good. And one of the miserable things about your bad side is when you're doing the bad thing, your good side's saying you shouldn't be doing that. And so Dr. Dreckel figures out a way to, to solve that and to separate those two. So he can just be totally bad or totally good. And immediately when he takes the potion, it becomes Mr. Hyde, completely wicked and never a thought about, I shouldn't be doing this. And he's thrilled. Then he can take the potion and move back to Dr. Jekyll, and he's completely good without an evil thought or intention, and he loves it. But, of course, what he figures out is he can't control the wickedness of of Mr. Hyde, and eventually it kills both of them. Eventually it kills both of them. Now, what's super interesting about his book is that I think it's a window into Stevenson's struggle that most of us, not most of us, all of us have as well, that he's battling with these two natures. He's trying to figure it out because at the end of his life, Lewis changed his name from Lewis, L-E-W-I-S, which was his grandfather's name, to Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, and dropped the Balfour altogether. So it was like he couldn't handle being tied to his grandfather's religious pedigree. It was just too much for him. And no doubt there was some frustration around this in his spiritual life. But here's the deal, friends. If you don't understand that you're going to battle with a sinful flesh, that there's going to be a real internal struggle with you as a Christian, you're going to be so disappointed your whole life. You're going to be really, really frustrated, and you're going to doubt your identity as a child of God. Now, I have good news and bad news for you in this. And the bad news is that you're going to battle your flesh for the rest of your life to the, to the last day. You're going to battle internally for the rest of your life. You will not be made perfect until you see Jesus, right? And that, that kind of stinks, to be honest with you. But the good news is this. First of all, you're not alone. You're not alone. This is the case for literally every other believer. And if you say, oh, Pastor Dave, but you don't know about so-and-so, they're practically perfect in every way. Right? They, they, they have it all figured out. They're, they're really dialed in Christians. Ah, you know, lots of us like to pretend like we are. And that's what I found as we go along in the Christian life. Lots of us, I mean, think about why Stevenson named his evil character Mr. Hyde. Isn't that interesting? We love to hide this stuff. We hate to admit it. We hate to confess it. And so if you do meet someone where you're like, they're just holier than the rest of us. They're just better than everybody else. Chances are they're hiding something. That's what I've found. And so I, I've kind of made it my goal to build a culture here where we do not pretend, where we confess our sin to one another, where we're open about it. Hey, I'm tempted by that. Hey, I struggle with that. Hey, this is a, a frustrating weakness of mine. And where we get used to that kind of culture because that is the reality. And hiding actually takes us backwards. It makes that temptation stronger and more powerful. So if there's a believer that you're convinced doesn't struggle with this, you might want to check again. They're probably hiding something. But the second part of the good news here is not, this, not just that you're not alone, but that your battle has radically shifted since becoming a Christian. And Tim Keller says, before you were a Christian, you were fighting a battle you couldn't win, whereas now you're fighting a battle you can't lose. I love that. You're fighting a battle you can't lose. In other words, the Holy Spirit will win this battle in you with the flesh. He is more powerful than your flesh. He's going to have his way in you over time. So learn to give in to him. So if over the past few months you've been tempted or even stumbled, take heart, get up, don't quit, keep fighting, fight against your flesh. 
The Holy Spirit will have his way in you. The big thing you must not do is quit and give up. That's the only thing you must not do. If you don't quit, you win. That's the big idea. So secondly, we battle our sinful flesh. But then thirdly and finally, we battle the world. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. He promised there would be friction with the world because we're not of this world, right? Um, just like we prayed in the prayer request, and Nathan said um, in the prayer request, we, we swear allegiance to a different king, King Jesus, and a different kingdom altogether. So Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And so uh, we are residents, or we're citizens of heaven, and heaven's coming down, the new earth, and we're citizens right now, or we're citizens of heaven, residents right here on earth. And so it's kind of a confusing time to live in, in this in-between space. But the big thing is to not get your kingdoms conflated, not get your allegiance conflated. And so it's really, really important for us to understand that there's going to be friction with the world as we swear allegiance to King Jesus. It's going to make us weird um, peculiar people in a lot of ways, odd people, people that are unpopular, people that are different, people that seem narrow and bigoted because we say Jesus is the only way, and that's okay. To be a Christian is to fight, period. Now, remember, Paul doesn't say how he fought or that he won the fight. He just says that he fought the good fight, that he didn't give up. And that's the key for us to understand here. The basic premise is that the only way you lose as a Christian is if you quit, if you give up. That's the only way Satan wins in your life. If you don't quit, you win. As a Christian, you don't have a choice about whether or not to fight. You say yes to King Jesus, you've picked a fight with all sorts of people, including inside yourself. But you do have a choice about whether or not to give up. And I'm here today telling you, Life Church, do not quit. Keep fighting. Fight against the devil and his servants. Fight against your flesh. Fight against the world. This is a fight worth fighting. Paul calls it the good fight. You're going to fall sometimes. You're going to sin. You're going to stumble. You're going to be terribly disappointed in yourself sometimes. Just keep getting back up. Just keep fighting. The only thing you can't do is quit. The only thing you can't do is give up. Don't give up. Don't give in. If you don't quit, you win. So Paul says keeping the faith is like fighting a long battle. But he also says it's like running a long race. And, you know, we've talked about this already a bit. But again, notice he doesn't say I ran faster than everyone else. He doesn't say I finished first in my heat. Nope. He simply says I finished. I finished the race. That's it. That's all you have to do. If you don't quit, you win. But this race, unfortunately, is not a 100-meter dash. How many of you are more sprinters than long-distance runners? You know, how many of you just hate running altogether? Yeah, that's me. You know, I don't run uh, for, for any reason if I don't have to. Um, but the idea here is this is a long race. It's a marathon. It lasts your entire life. So speed is not the important thing. Endurance is the important thing. You got to be gritty. You got to be able to stick to it. Um, how many of you know why they call it a marathon, this 26.2-mile run? Anybody know? There's actually a cool history behind it. The word marathon comes from this geographic place where this great battle took place between Greece and Persia in 490 BC. And if the Persians had won, honestly, the course of world history would have been dramatically changed. Lots of the glories of ancient Greece would not have happened. And so the legend is that after the battle, this Greek soldier ran back the distance from Marathon to Athens, which was 21 to 25 miles, depending on his route. I don't know where it got 26.2. 
uh, but somebody, somebody, some, you know, type A person got involved. And, um, and now we have that distance that we all have to run. But after he ran this distance with the news of the victory, he fell dead. He died. So the first person that ever ran a marathon died, which the moral of the story is marathons are really bad for you. And I learned that. I actually did one. And it was hard. It was very painful. And it was way, way, way too long. And I'll tell you a funny story about my first and only marathon. And that is, uh, you know, I was running this intensive discipleship program for young guys in the church. I was doing youth ministry. And so I said, hey, I want to have this intensive program for young guys to just really develop them. Um, and I, I, we called it Red Letter Men. So we were going to serve in the community. We were going to study the Bible together. We were going to memorize scripture. And we are going to have this physical fitness component because we had a military guy in the church at the time. And so I was like, hey, will you run us through, like, some of your PT drills and stuff? And at the end of the year, we wanted to have a spiritual challenge, which it was memorizing a huge section of 1 Timothy, and a physical challenge. We chose a marathon because so much of Scripture points us to this idea of running the race with perseverance. And we all got busy training for this marathon that we chose to run in Olathe, Kansas, the flattest, windiest, coldest place on earth, apparently, in the spring. Uh, bad decision to run it there. But we did, and, and that's where we, so we started training for this marathon. We were running outside 10 miles, 15 miles, and, you know, trying to get ready. But the military guy who was with us, he's in the best shape of the whole group. He's like, no, nah, I don't need to train. I do PT every day with my job, and so I, I'll be fine. I was like, you sure? This is kind of a different deal, you know? Like, this is a long, long race. He's like, no, I'll be fine. So the day of the race comes, and he bolts out ahead of all of us. And we're like, oh, man, he's going to smoke us. And he was way ahead of all of us at mile 13, you know, the halfway point. We, we couldn't see him after a while. And we get to the end of the race, finally, after like four hours, and we can't find him. We're like, where did he? He should be here. He should have been here a long time ago. We get a phone call from him. He's at the hospital. So at mile 17, his body had cramped up and said, you're not going another step. And he was, he was on his back. The ambulance came, treated him, and took him to the ER. And he's terribly embarrassed, but he's like, yeah, I just, I just underestimated. I just couldn't go another step. And his body totally freaked out on him. And so I realized that day that when it comes to these long races, endurance beats speed every single time. And that's what Paul is saying to us here today. He's saying, this race is going to get long. You're going to have cramps. You're going to want to quit and give up. That's why the emphasis here is on finishing the race. Paul says he finished it. Anybody can start a marathon, but it takes grit and determination and perseverance to finish it. And sadly, we're told in Scripture that many, many people um, will start the Christian race and not finish it. You know, wide is the path that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to life, and few find it. Paul is thrilled because he did not give up. He's well aware of the finisher's reward. If you don't quit, you win. That's the big idea. So verse 7, Paul finally says what all this fighting and running has been for, so that he might keep his faith. And again, the big idea is that you just keep your faith. You win. Notice he's not bragging about the strength of his faith. He's not saying he's got more faith than all y'all. He's just saying, I have, I've kept my faith. It's intact. I still trust Jesus the strength of your faith is not what's so important. It's the object of your faith. Who is your faith in? Who is your trust in? Faith is the key here. Faith or trust in Jesus is what saves us. We're not saved by anything we do, but by, but by what Jesus has done for us. And ultimately, you see, this is where Paul has gotten so much confidence as he faces death. 
He's super confident, almost unnervingly confident, but that's because his faith is intact. That's because his trust in Jesus is unwavering. And look, we know this is where he's getting his confidence because look at what he says in verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Saying, I'm going to get my crown. It's laid up for me, and the Lord, the righteous judge, is going to give it to me and everybody else who's loved his appearing. But I think maybe some of us would say, well, a righteous judge, is that really what I'm looking forward to on the last day? Being as sinful as I am, we might have good reason to say, no, that's the last person I would like to see is the righteous judge. So notice Paul's actually comforted by this fact that Jesus, the righteous judge, is going to give him this crown. Paul isn't actually looking for mercy on that day. He's looking for the righteous judge to give him justice because he knows that justice has been done. He knows that perfect righteousness has been won for him by the one who lived perfectly in his stead. So Paul's confidence is not in how hard he ran. It's not in how how, um, strong his faith is. It's not in how he's finished the race. His confidence is 100% in the one who achieved perfect righteousness for him. So do you see how that's a game changer? You can actually look forward to a just God on that day because you say, I know I didn't do anything, but Jesus did. He accomplished everything for me, and all my confidence is then him. So, like, God, I want you to give me justice because he satisfied justice. He lived perfect righteousness and gave me the righteousness that he achieved. So that's why Paul's confident here. He's really confident in the one he has faith in. He has all the confidence in the world in Jesus, which really begs the question of us. As you look down the hallway of your life, what are you looking to for your confidence? Like, what, what gives you confidence as you imagine that moment when you stand before God? Is it how you cared for the poor? Is it your impeccable morality? Is it your just basic human goodness? Or is all your confidence on Jesus? 100%. I have nothing to commend myself to you except for Jesus. I've got Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. Gives him every bit of his confidence. Look at how he closes here. Verse 18, he says, So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. He's saying, that's my rescuer. Every bit of my confidence is in him. That's why he can smile in a Roman prison as he's staring death in the face. And Paul's confidence in Christ is so strong because he knows, he's already seen that Jesus is no quitter, right? Right? I mean, if, if there's ever a person that's like, I'm no quitter, it's Jesus Christ. Look what Hebrews says about Jesus. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus didn't give up. Jesus didn't give in. And because of that, he won. He won the greatest victory that's ever been won over Satan, over our sin, and even over death itself. And because Jesus won that victory, as we put our faith in him, we become winners too. Kind of reminds me of, sorry for all these sports analogies, but the bench players in a championship team. You ever thought about that? Bench players get a ring too. If you were on Michael Jordan's team back in the 90s, all you got to do, if you're a bench player, on the, you just have to make it through practice and not quit the team, and you're going to get a ring. You know good and well Michael's going to put the whole team on his back and win that game for you, and you're not going to do a thing. 
but you're going to get a ring. You're going to be a winner too. That's exactly the way it works with Jesus. He's the star player. He's the one that's won our victory. He's the one that has achieved everything for us. We didn't do a thing. But as we're attached to him through faith, we become winners too. If you don't quit, you win. Let me close with this benediction, the full version of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. This is the word for us today. Therefore, Life Church, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Worship team's going to come and lead us.